Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Every single time one of our listeners out there has purchased a small game hunting license and, you know, take your pick. If it's, uh, you know, that, that small game license in South Dakota, uh, the pheasant stamp that you have to purchase in Minnesota, uh, a small game license in Georgia to hunt quail, small game license in Arizona, pick your state. You are always asked if you want to be HIP certified. And I know I've always been asked that question whenever I've been buying a, a hunting license, a small game hunting license. And I know that I'm supposed to say yes. And I always have said yes, but I never really understood why I should say yes, why I need to be HIP certified. What's that even mean? So that's our topic for today's On the Wing podcast, HIP certification. What's it mean? And what does it mean to the upland bird hunter? To help me understand the answer to that question, we have a gentleman by the name of Brad Bortner, retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist and the former national chief of the Migratory Bird Management Division. Brad, Thank you very much for joining Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's nice to have a web-footed friend talking with uh, with the Upland Bird guys and gals. Well, uh, welcome. Well, Bob, uh, thank you for having me, and I, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to your listeners. Um, I, I guess I can be characterized as being partially web-footed because uh, yeah. I've, I'm a bird hunter, and I hunt all sorts of birds, uh, whether they have webs in their feet. And in fact, my first um, my first job with the Fish and Wildlife Service, I was working on, I was a woodcock specialist for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's um, been a long time since they've had webs. So uh, <laughs> I, I worked on the upland, uh, the, the upland migratory uh, shore and upland game birds uh, for years and before I started dabbling in the waterfowl more. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that um, we're all kindred spirits and, and we're all big bird hunters, whether they be migratory or resident. When I told a couple of my colleagues you're going to be on our podcast, you're like, you know, Brad's a legend in the Fish and Wildlife Service. So tell us about your career, too. Uh, well, I'm not <laughs> maybe infamous uh, instead of famous. But, um, uh, yeah, I uh, I grew up in a, in a Navy family. So like the Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere, man. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I lived um, in Massachusetts, uh, Florida. Guam, California, Maryland, uh, wherever they could park a Navy ship um, or they had a, a Navy installation. I've been there. And then um, yeah, my father was career Navy. And, and then uh, I followed up his 31 years in the Navy with 33 years in the Fish and Wildlife Service. So I, um, I, I spent most of my high school years in, um, in Annapolis, Maryland, where my father was um, either attached to the Naval Academy or into um, uh, into the Navy um, in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm. And so I, I um, had, a, had a grandfather who was a big fly fisherman and, a, and an uncle who was a big waterfowl hunter. 
Um, and they, they introduced me to hunting and fishing. Uh, my father uh, wasn't much of an outdoorsman. Uh, he supported me in, in doing those activities, but he didn't, um, he wasn't my mentor, my, my grandfather, and my uncle were. And um, I had a buddy in his family that lived on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, and we hunted morning doves and bobwhite quail and ducks and geese uh, on their farm. Hmm. And, and had some other friends uh, that had, um, had farms in Southern Maryland. And so we hunted down there a lot too. And I got into uh, waterfowl hunting um, and uh, like I said, uh, morning doves and quail. Decided I wanted to um, not be a Navy officer, but I, uh, I wanted to um, uh, be a wildlife biologist. And I um, went off to school at the University of Vermont and um, in the mid in the mid seventies and got a degree in um, in wildlife biology and also uh, another degree in forestry. I thought I'd get something that I might actually possibly get a job in uh, at some point in time. But <laughs> um, I was always interested in habitat side of things. So having both the wildlife and the forestry degree uh, uh, was going, you know prepare me for being a habitat manager because I always expected that I end up managing a piece of ground somewhere for either a state or federal mm-hmm. agency. And after um, a few years of that, you know, I, um, I uh, was getting my degree and, you know, I had a major professor who said, you know, you really like waterfowl. You ought to go up to Delta Waterfowl Research Station in Manitoba for the summer and, um, and learn more about waterfowl. And I went up there and um, I had a great time and decided to come back and get a graduate degree in, um, in waterfowl. And um, I did my master's degree, um, not on ducks or geese, but on swans. Hmm. And um, I worked on uh, what's now called tundra swans um, down in North Carolina, coastal North Carolina, and um, was getting ready to migrate to the Midwest um, to do a PhD at Iowa State when I got offered a permanent full-time job with the federal government. And I said, that sounds like a good investment of time versus um, four or five more years in college. Um, <laughs> so um, I joined the, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, as the Woodcock Specialist um, in Laurel, Maryland at, at what an institution called the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. <laughs> and um, so I deviated. I had always planned on wanting to go down to tall timbers and, and learn to prescribe, um, prescribe fire for quail management and um, ended up uh, working on Woodcock and uh, a lot of, you know, partnership stuff with state and, and, and the forest ser- state agencies and forest service. Um, I did that for a few years and um, then got drafted into doing some of the water, some waterfowl work, which, you know, I enjoyed anyway. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, then they, then they asked me to take a promotion. So I took a promotion and I was in, all of a sudden in charge of, um, doing all the uh, all the analytical work that was behind migratory bird hunting regulations, determining what the appropriate hunting regulations were um, for ducks, geese, swans, um, morning doves, woodcock, um, rails, mm-hmm. uh, snipe, and coot. And at that point in time, I um, it was much easier to do the analytical work for ducks and geese um, because we had a harvest survey. Uh, for ducks and geese, we had banding programs for for ducks and geese, but we didn't have those same programs for morning doves, for 
woodcock and everything else. So we were limited in, in the technical analyses. And that's when I became a, a big proponent of pushing something that we now call hip. Hmm. Um, and um, in the late 80s, I, um, I was, several of my colleagues published a paper on call for a need for a, a federal harvest survey for the migratory shore and upland game birds. And um, after a few years, that, that evolved into what we now know as hip. Anyway, um, um, in the early 90s, I was offered a chance to, um, uh, to migrate out to Portland, Oregon. And I was the regional chief of migratory birds in Portland, um, which uh, for the, at that point in time was a single region um, and it included California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, and the Pacific Islands. Um, so I uh, did a lot of work in the Central Valley, Nevada, um, uh, in Oregon and Washington, and occasionally even migrated to Hawaii and did things out um, in Hawaii. Hmm. And in 2011, um, of, there was a, um, a vacancy for the National Ch uh, Chief of Migratory Bird Management, and um, I had no interest at all in uh, going anywhere east of the Mississippi, uh, but my wife and, um, and said, you know, this is an opportunity. You really need to do this. this is, you know, you've been preparing your whole career to step up into this, uh, this position. And it's, it's your turn in the frying pan and um, of the assistant director for fish and, uh, of in the Fish and Wildlife Service asked me to come back and, and serve in that position. So I went back and I was the national chief of migratory bird management from 2011 to uh, 2017. So um, outside of that, um, I retired in 2017 and I've been enjoying retirement. Um, a couple, <laughs> couple years ago, the Wildlife Management Institute asked me if I would um, uh, take on a part-time job leading this effort on uh, the harvest information program improvement because of my relationships with the states and my deep understanding of the need and, and, um, and the uses of harvest information and, and the harvest information program. And um, I've been on the um, on the soapbox for a couple of years now, uh, going around and talking to talking to folks, working with state agencies to modifying their licensing systems, um, and reaching out to non traditional um, you know audiences like your like you and your listeners um, to try to um, educate folks um, about HIP, why it's important what's in it for the hunters and mm -hmm. why they care whether that Walmart clerk or, you know, the um, sporting goods store clerk ask them those hip questions and let them understand why it's important and how they're benefiting from answering those questions. Oh, that's a perfect segue. And congratulations on a pretty incredible career, by the way. Oh. You, you, uh, you, you talked about your, your dad being a, a Navy guy and, all the different stops along the way. And it, it certainly made me think uh, you were training to be a migratory employee of your own, you know, with all those stops. And then, you know, at, at early on, as you were talking about your career, like, oh, so he's not going to move to a whole bunch of different places. But then eventually you did move in a whole yeah. bunch of different places and, and you've, you've migrated around the U.S. quite a bit. Well, there's one thing with um, 
with being a migratory bird biologist is you do surveys all over. You follow the birds, you know, you do yeah. the surveys everywhere and, um, and you go to meetings everywhere. And I can, I can honestly tell you that I've been to every United States, every U S state and all the Canadian provinces and I've missing one Canadian territory. So, um, wow. I, I've, I've either done work or, or gone to meetings or traveled, um, to, um, most of North America. Then, you know, as migratory bird chief, um, attended meetings in Canada, uh, Mexico, Russia, and Japan. Mm. And, um, have seen, you know, seen, been out on habitats and, and all of those, um, and all of those countries, because the United States has, you know, migratory bird treaties with those, uh, those other countries. I, so. How do, so I'm going to take a couple really sharp tangents, but I don't get a chance to talk with a person that's, you know, a biologist that's looked at, you know, habitat and conditions all over the world like you. Um, when you, you know, talk about Russia and, and Japan and going to other con continents, you know, we, we often refer to the North American model as a game changer for our continent. Um, is that still true today? And are other continents or other countries doing things that are innovative to the point where are there things that we should be thinking about and adopting for mig migratory water, for, for wildlife, for upland wildlife, anything that piqued your interest when you were traveling? Um, well, um, from a migratory bird standpoint, the rest of the world is envious of our system that we have in North America. Um, mm -hmm. The system of cooperation between the state and federal governments and um, both in the U.S. and in Canada and um, the surveys that we have, the information that we have um, of, is um, the rest of the world is jealous about it. Our, our migratory bird um, breeding population survey uh, that we, where we count and estimate duck populations is seen as the gold standard for mm. landscape level um, migratory bird population monitoring and estimation. Um, the and then, you know, you're familiar with the European models um, of, you know, game bird management. Um, they don't have the flyway system that we have um, for either um, waterfowl or for um, uh, migratory shore and upland game birds. And they don't have the um, they don't have the involvement of the hunters um, in providing income um, for for management um, and for surveys and for habitat protection like we have in North America. So um, uh, if, you're, if you're a private landowner in, in Europe um, or you're a member of a, you know, a wealthy family, you probably get access to go hunting or have mm -hmm. access, to, access to firearms. Um, but um, the management agencies that, and the hunters um, in those areas that I've been to uh, look at what we have and say, uh, you've just got a, a wealth of information and and uh, and and resources that we don't have and don't have access to. Mm -hmm. So that's that's comforting to hear, right? We we assume that you know we we kind of have the best model, but I always I worry about oh when I look at high fence hunting and some of the trends that sort of ebb and flow over time. I worry that sometimes we as American um, 
hunters and anglers, we take that for granted. How, again, the North American model where wildlife is the owned by the collective, right? Not not the person that owns the land necessarily. Um, I, I, that's um, that's really important for us to not undermine that, isn't it? We shouldn't take it for granted. That's for sure. Um, is that that we'll have that. And, you know, the other thing is, is we shouldn't take for granted the demographics that we're seeing um, in the hunting community and a support. And uh, I know you've done programs with um, a much more articulate colleague of mine, Matt Dumfries from Wildlife Management Institute, about uh, R3 efforts. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I know, you know, that pheasants and forever and quail forever have been um, been very active in R3 and um uh, I, I just encourage that, and I don't want any of your listeners to, um, to, you know, to downplay those efforts. Um, I mean, we all um, liked our our pastime and everything else. We hear these effort these uh, efforts so about recruiting and reactivating and um, you know hunters, but we need to take it personally. And and um, I think Matt said in his, um, you know, go out and find and mentor somebody who doesn't look like you, is not from your same um, background mm. and everything else, because that's the only way we're going to have strength in the future to perpetuate the system that we do have is by um, is by bringing others and, and broadening um, the participation in our um, in our activities um, with um, with folks of that represent all, all Americans and, you know, get them involved, um, uh, get, get them some exposure to that so they can, um, they can step up and, and protect the same things that we're interested in protecting. Well, I said I was going to take a left turn and I did. That's, that's fine. <laughs> um, it's, it's your nickel, right? <laughs> let's go, let's go back to him. Um, so it sounds like when you're telling your kind of your, your biography, you were right there at the beginning, the, um, the discussions about, um, you know, why there was a need and the creation for how it happened. So, so take us back to that. Cause I think, you know, I, I don't think that I'm abnormal in when I go to, like you say, the Walmart clerk or the, the Cabela's counter and buy my license. I know I need to say yes to hip, but I don't, I didn't really know what that meant. So, so walk me through that. Okay. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to take sole credit for, you know, um, for the, the idea. I mean, there's been the, um, the, the understanding that there was a need for better, better information for management of the migratory shore and upland game birds. You know, we started um, uh, population surveys for all the migratory birds, um, game birds and non-game birds, actually between about 1955 and 1966. Hmm. And um, there were, um, uh, that's when, you know, we, we established the aerial surveys for ducks. That's when we started the, um, the, the harvest survey for, uh, for ducks and geese where people mail a wing in. Um, also started what's called the what, what was called the morning dove uh, coup count survey, the woodcock um, you know singing ground survey, and if you want to go to the non game birds or you know other broader the, the breeding bird survey, all started between fifty five and sixty six. Hmm. Um, but um, uh, 
we, we didn't have a systematic way of sampling migratory shore and upland game bird hunters. We, you know, since the passage of the Duck Stamp Act, um, migratory bird hunters, uh, what duck and waterfowl hunters had to buy a duck stamp. And, you know, um, years before they came up with the idea, okay, since um, duck stamps have to go to waterfowl hunters, we'll, we will provide postcards when they get a duck stamp and, and ask people to participate in a, um, a survey to estimate the number of ducks and geese that are shot every year. And that evolved into the, um, into the waterfowl harvest survey. And that went along pretty well until the um, early to mid eighties. And it's, and they started getting into some bumps with uh, post offices, not um, giving out the cards, um, uh, you know, not carrying duck stamps anymore, some things like that. About that same time, um, uh, some colleagues and I got together and we were talking about the need to try to improve harvest statistics on morning doves, uh, on woodcock. I mean, morning doves, probably the um, of the heaviest harvested um, migratory bird in, in North America. And we don't have a heart. We didn't have a harvest estimate at the time. Mm. And um, we had, a we, had, we knew the, the general size and, and uh, trend for the breeding population, but we didn't really know how many hunters there were, how many uh, birds were being harvested. And that was true for woodcock, um, you know, to some extent, sandhill cranes, uh, rails, snipe, uh, coots, moorhens. And so we published a paper identifying the need and the state agencies um, stood up and said, you're right, we do need this. Hmm. Um, otherwise we might, uh, we might lose um, this tradition of, of hunting these migratory birds. So um, over the course of um, a few years in the 19, mid 1990s and everything else, there was you know, policy negotiations and discussions about how to best administer this. I won't go into all the nitty gritty and, and everything else, but it was basically decided that it would probably go best if um, each state collected the names and addresses of uh, migratory bird hunters and then shipped that information off to the Fish and Wildlife Service for, for doing um, the harvest survey. You know, Fish and Wildlife Service had been doing harvest surveys for ducks and geese for 30 years at that point in time. They knew that they had, you know, specialized people that could do that. They had the facilities for doing that. But the Fish and Wildlife Service really had no ability to collect names and addresses um, of hunters. State agencies um, have that purview and, and are experts in that. So um, we came up with a system um, where um, the state agencies uh, collect those um, names and addresses. We tested it for a few years and it went basically went live in 1999. Um, as part of that, we, um, you know, when you start thinking about trying to identify um, of, of, of the hunters out there who are migratory bird hunters, and then, you know, who are the hunters that are actually harvesting snipe rails? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, think about it. It's really searching for the needle in the haystack. Hmm. And um, so, we, you know, we went on this idea of um, he's asking the hunters to answer a few basic questions when they um, get their HIP certification. 
that's all that HIP certification really is, is give, giving your name and address up to the to state agencies and ask, answering five or six basic questions. How many birds, did you hunt these birds last year? And if you did hunt this, these birds, how many did you harvest? Put that into an R3 standpoint or, you know, perspective, since mm-hmm. that's the, the, the current, you know, um, big challenge is how to... Um, make sure that our programs are um, relevant to migratory bird hunters is, um, you know, you're, a, you're asking to hunters to self-identify as um, a duck hunter or a woodcock hunter or a morning dove hunter. And then you're get, getting them, uh, if you think about it this way, you know, you find out how avid they are. Did they go last year? Maybe they skipped a year. Maybe they didn't. Um, and, and how successful. So you, if once you start getting that information, you can start thinking about how to um, build programs to recruit, reactivate, or um, you know, um, bring them back into you know in, into the hunting community. Hmm. Um, and so those questions that you answer with, uh, um, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. But those answers that you quest uh, that you answer to the the sporting goods clerk when you buy your license are, are not the harvest survey, but they are um, stratification questions that help the um, state and the, and the Fish and Wildlife Service um, conduct a, a efficient um, survey that, uh, that has some level of precision. If you ask, if you, um, and you find this with some states, if you, if you ask um, all the hunters out there, um, you know, if we end up getting the wrong hunters in the, in the sample frame, um, you send them surveys and you get, I used to get, when I was migratory bird chief, I used to get these, uh, I call it hate mail. It wasn't really hate mail, but, um, I, yeah, I get, you know, responses from hunters every year saying, I've never shot a migratory bird in my life. Why are you asking me these questions? And they were deer hunters, you know, rabbit hunters, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they somehow their name ended up in the in the hip survey, and they got sampled and mm. and asked how many migratory birds they hunted, and they've never you know never shot them. So mm. that's a that's a teaser into some of the issues that I'm working on now with the states is making sure that we're sampling and getting the names and addresses and the answers from the right pool of hunters. Yeah, because you mentioned that you're working for Wildlife Management Institute to help improve. HIP certification. So has it come back to you're trying to find better data as a result of that um, yeah, it, improvement? Yeah, ultimately, this all comes down to um, a data quality issue, um, if you want to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm working for the Wildlife Management Institute. And as you learned from Matt's um, interview, the WMI is um, basically a think tank or a group of um of uh, professionals that have broad experience and that can go in and solve um, problems, work with partners, um, and um, identify some of these larger trends. And that's where th- this project of mine um, falls in is, is here are some you know, 49 states. There is no migratory bird hunting in Hawaii, which is why we have 49 states. So. Yeah. Um, they all have different licensing systems. They all administer those licensing systems differently. And any solution to cleaning up their names and address and answers to the question files 
has to be developed on a state-by-state basis. So there is no one way to fix it all. Um, and so um, uh, I you know, sit down with the states and, and we have conversations about, okay, you know, what is, what's the data look like in your state? And what are some of the ways that you administer your licensing? And what are some of the concerns? And what's, what, what is your state vision for um, where you're going with your licensing system? Hmm. And, and so I try to work with them and um, and also do a lot of education uh, education outreach to folks like yourself and and others to explain hip answer all the questions there is about uh, that you, they have about hip everybody I talk to all has um, always has different experiences with with hip um, and um, different stories to tell and then misunderstandings mm-hmm. so HIP itself is just the certification. It's just the the name and address collection by the states, and then handed off to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so, the Fish and, Wild, and the Fish and Wildlife Service conducts a harvest, two different harvest surveys, based on those name and address information. So you've got rough a little over twenty years worth of data, right? Because you said it started in nineteen ninety nine. Did I catch yeah. that correctly? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> can you point to one or two things that the data has informed a decision that maybe wouldn't have been, maybe wouldn't have happened without um, hip data that came through hunters. Sure. Um, I think the, I think the thing that um, not to focus you know, on any one specific decision, but I can tell you that um, the reason hunters should care is that, um, the HIP data directly goes in and feeds the harvest strategies for morning doves, mm. for pintails, for woodcock, um, you know, for, for canvasbacks. It, it, it is a structural element in some of the models that, um, that Fish and Wildlife Service uses, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the states through the flyways use in making decisions on what the, the hunting regulations are. Mm. And, and so... The issue that um, that we're we're focused on here uh, in the pilot is trying to improve the precision of those estimates. Um, not to get into too much statistical, um, you know, background, but you know, getting the point estimate of what the harvest is, and then you get a uh, you know what the statisticians would call a confidence interval around that. And if you are sampling the wrong pool of hunters or people who um, have are deer hunters and and you you've put them in the stratum that um, that says they're highly successful migratory bird hunters and they report zero, it blows up your um, your precision on that mm. estimate and therefore they're less um, it's less useful um, in setting having confidence in setting the, the appropriate hunting regulations. So um, that's kind of a, a complicated way of answering your question about what what decision um, it's used in decisions all the time. Um, but we can make, we can make finer decisions or more precise decisions. Um, if they, if we got better quality data and so and, uh, how would a deer hunter get asked hip, uh, the hip survey, is that human well, error happening at the licensing level? It, it happens in a couple different ways in that, um, uh, and this is what where it gets kind of complex. Uh, and why I was talking about developing the solutions at a state level, I don't. I'm not, 
is um, what we're what we're finding is is that there are clerks that don't ask the question, mm. or um, or clerks that say, "Oh, well, you're going to buy a license, so we might as well click all the boxes." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and then people who and then hunters who just don't know what HIP is, and they say, "Do you want to be HIP certified?" And they say, "Sure," um, and not realizing what that what that does. Um, Again, a lot of it is, um, is is misunderstanding or not knowing what HIP is about, and um, or if you're you know in line, there's 20 people behind you, and you're at the at the uh, Walmart buying. And I hate to pick on Walmart; it could be any sporting goods sure. uh, license, license vendor. Um, but if you're at the you know a sporting goods store and you're buying your license, and there's 20 people in line, the clerk is like, "I need to turn people over," and mm-hmm. so they'll. Um, they find they'll find real quickly online if they just if they just tapped the didn't hunt last year. Uh, the next click on the on the screen is continue, and they've you've issued the the hip certification to a hunter who may have who who may have shot a hundred um, you know morning doves last year or, or mm-hmm. rails and everything else, and but they went into the database as not hunting last year, so they had zero success and they're in the wrong category and they get sampled at a different rate than highly successful hunters. Okay. So, um, you know, you get misclassification, um, or you get put in, you know, you get deer hunters or rabbit hunters put in there just because they didn't know better. Um, or someone, um, clicked the, was clicking through the boxes quickly. Hmm. And, and, you know, there's, um, there's other examples of people, um, you know, who think that the harvest survey is actually the, res- the those questions that, so if I put down zero, they're going to think that less birds were shot and therefore we'll have more liberal regulations. You know, they, again, not understanding what those questions are and how the, how the Fish and Wildlife Service estimates and the flyways estimate um, bird harvest, they um, think they're gaming the system by putting down a zero or saying we didn't hunt last year. And uh, all that does is add to the imprecision and the cost of doing the survey. Um, and mm-hmm. if, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, again, we think that if, if more hunters understood what, uh, how they're benefiting and why HIP is important, how they benefit from um, providing good data, they'll do that because, you know, hunters all want to you know, continue to hunt and participate. Um, and they just need to know how their how their involvement is important and helps feed um, the system. Right. So I opened this episode with I always knew I was supposed to answer yes, and that relates back to I always have hunted woodcock, right? Since grouse hunter that's always hunted woodcock. But if there's a pheasant hunter out there or a quail hunter out there that doesn't hunt doves, doesn't hunt woodcock, doesn't hunt rails, doesn't hunt snipe, doesn't hunt any of the migratory birds then they should actually answer no correct they should yeah if you're if you if you have no intention of 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 hunting migratory uh any migratory birds whether they're upland or or waterfowl mm-hmm. um you should answer you should answer no but if but if you're a pheasant hunter and you're saying well i'm going to pack along um you know i'm going to shoot steel shot and uh, if i jump a wood duck in a ditch or a, a mallard out of a ditch somewhere 
um, or while you're out grouse hunting and and um, you're going to shoot and you shoot woodcock or if you're a quail hunter in in north north Georgia um, and you you're hunting you know flushing woodcock or um, doves, you should be hip certified. Hmm. So that leads to kind of the the big one of the big questions at the end of this that I had is why is it relevant to pheasants and quail? Why why is hip matter when we're talking about birds that you know their lifespan is two mile radius? They're not migratory, but there's so many connections to all these other species, right? I mean, it's it gets right. back to the web of life in many ways. It, it does, and the the other thing that probably people don't realize at all is, um, and, and I, I'm sure as a pheasant hunter, you'll, you'll appreciate this is, you know, if you look in, um, the mid continent where the fish and wildlife service has, um, national wildlife refuges and, and, and waterfowl production areas, one of the data points that goes into the, the fish and wildlife services decisions to make, to, to, to acquire, um, uh, refuges or waterfowl production areas, including the associated upland, is um, is harvest information, mm -hmm. and 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 so um, the HIP information actually directly feeds into what's called the land acquisition program in the in the Fish and Wildlife Service. So, um, I know that there are a lot of uh, pheasants shot on WPAs and, mm -hmm. and national wildlife refuges and. And even if you are a completely non-migratory bird hunter and, and only an upland game bird hunter, um, if you're hunting, um, if you're hunting a WPA or, or in some cases national wildlife refuges for pheasants or quail or something else, there's some possibility that hip, the hip harvest information um, uh, was used in justification of, a, of identifying that piece of land and, and purchasing that land. So you're a retired guy now. What's on your uh, What's on your hunting horizon for the year ahead? Well, I am a, a retired guy, and I um, am very fortunate to have um, uh, a, a network of mainly uh, retired state um, wildlife uh, chiefs, uh, uh, department directors, biologists that I I hunt with a network of them. I um, you you're, you can see the my study here in the background with the decoys mm -hmm. and the prints and there's a rough i mean a woodcock print there and there's a pintail there and there's a um a bunch of pheasant feathers here um, um <laughs> and um so i host i host um uh, a couple groups of uh retired state waterfowl biologists and state administrators for for duck hunts i'm a big duck hunter still and but from the upland side is i hunt with um two folks that are um, probably known to your listeners i'm not sure i should mention their names or not but uh, one's a um, retired of uh, of state director um, and also administrator uh, for the western association of fish and wildlife agencies is a big um of uh, sharp tail pheasant and uh, prairie chicken uh, hunter who uh, has a pack of four German short hairs and um, first name Larry. Hunter. Yes, his first name is Larry. <laughs> okay. and he, he publishes a lot of pictures of of um, of uh, iconic pictures of of um, 
grouse uh, harvest. Um, I've probably participated in a few of those hunts. <laughs> and then um, and and then another one who's re- retired um, uh, wildlife chief from and deputy director from Montana, and he hunts with an um, an English setter, and uh, we usually get together and hunt um, in Montana. And uh, last year we did South Dakota and Alberta, and um, and then they'll come here and hunt ducks with me. Uh, I've got a brand new ten-month-old um, uh, uh, pointing um, black lab, um, who I'm hoping to hunt uplands and um, and and waterfowl with. And I have a ten-year-old black lab too, who and he. Um, he, he got introduced to uh, upland gamebird hunting last year and he, he kind of figured out uh, the sharp tail game and, and um, he enjoyed that quite a bit. So we'll be, um, we'll be heading to Montana and, in September and we're planning some other, um, other trips. Um, I did a bunch of scouting in, in Nebraska here recently. So um, the rest of it's confidential, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll be out there this fall. That's for sure. Well, it's good for you. I'm glad. I mean, you know, we, I don't think we've probably crossed paths before, but I don't um, know that we've talked a whole heck of a lot, but you, you don't look old enough to be a retired guy. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> which I grew the beard. I grew the beard. So I would, but, you know, <laughs> you're saying, I failed, huh? Well, congratulations on being uh you know, what I presume to be in excellent health and young enough to take advantage of um, probably the seasons this fall that we all dream about being retired and, and chasing birds. It's a pretty uh, well, exci- excited for you. Uh, I am, but uh, if Larry is giving, gives me a hard time about um, doing this job, even as a part-time job, um, and and having that having that mess up. Um, any other plans? Because uh, he'd he'd prefer to have me spend more time with him out in the field. Um, but I'm sure we'll get to Montana and and probably um, point south of there. And I've been trying to get them to come out here to Washington State. And and um, there's a few pheasants around and some quail, um, mm. probably some chuckers and some other ways to get in trouble too. So. <laughs> well, I want to once again thank you for for your career and continuing your career with the Wildlife Management Institute. What you do has always been incredibly important and it makes a difference for all of us that uh, maybe don't have biology degrees, but care an awful lot about chasing bird dogs in the fall. So thank you, Brad. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks, Bob. And and thanks to all the listeners for putting up with me for an hour. But make sure um, if you're going to hunt migratory birds that you get your HIP certification and, and answer those questions as truthfully and make sure that the clerk asks you the questions if if they um, if they don't, if they skip it, say, hey, I'm um, I want to answer those questions. It'll improve the, the quality of the data and and management and of all these species would be um, better off for it. And take the time to do it, uh, answer the questions if you're doing it online, correct? Yeah, uh, online. Well, that's, you know, lots of agencies are moving towards online or, or using apps. And um, uh, now you know why, why you should do it and why you're being asked that question. And, um, uh, you know, submit your data, submit your data, answer the questions and, and if you're lucky, you might get asked to participate in the harvest survey. Perfect. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's Brad Bortner. Long-storied career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and 
has been helping you put birds in your game vest, whether or not you knew it. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre. Thank you. Thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>